to Pierre Eves. My name is Liam, one of the pastors here. It's good to be gathered together like this. Thank you, Pierre Eves, for leading. He's just come back from the Yak weekend. I'm amazed he's not fallen asleep as he's walked back to his seat. Thank you for leading tonight. Um, let's turn in our Bibles back to that passage that was read for us a few moments ago in Luke chapter 20. Uh, this is officially Sermon 52 in our series. We've been in it for over a year, really, and uh, we're going to be finished by Easter. We are uh, in the temple courts. We are in this last week of uh, the earthly life of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, pre-cross, certainly. And uh, it'll be good to pray together once more as we walk through this passage shortly. Our Father... Uh, Jesus, your son once warned those who read uh, these very scriptures that it's possible to read them, but to not know them, or your power that it tells us about. Lord, let that never be true of us, and help us to know it, indeed to know you, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, public figures often come up under very intense scrutiny. We know this. We see this day in, day out. Uh, football managers, for example, have to endure post-match press conferences where the questions asked aren't really designed to obtain any kind of information. Uh, but to ruffle, sports journalists have a, have a knack of asking questions, really not to, to, to get a story, uh, but to make a story. This picture makes me feel sad. Anyway, politicians come under the same scrutiny. Uh, political journalist Andrew Marr, I once read an article by him where he admitted that there is an art to the political interview. He said, we devise stratagems of attack. We master outrageous bluntness, serpentine logic, and the look of shock to all to get on your subject the kind of look you see on the face of your great aunt. He said, I'll try a smiley gentle, nasty, repetitive, almost anything to get the answer to the question I've asked and not the answer to the question they wanted me to ask. Many politicians crumble under that kind of interrogation. Once in a while, you find someone who actually stands up to it. I mean, who can forget Jordan Peterson sitting opposite the feisty and opinionated Kathy Newman of Channel 4 News, himself voicing his discomfort at uh, Newman's willingness to offend him by her questions, as he said, in pursuit of truth on a discussion around the gender pay gap, yet he commends her for it. And she was so caught off guard by this that she mumbled and stumbled her way through two or three sentences before looking into the air for words that just never came. And uh, classic uh, TV moment, uh, Peterson just goes, ha, gotcha. And he had. Now, uh, Public figures come under intense scrutiny, and I'm, the reason I'm starting with that tonight is because what we see in our passage through these a raft of different episodes in this, uh, in this time at the temple court is that Jesus himself is coming under scrutiny. He is uh, coming under the intense scrutiny of different religious leaders. He's basically in their backyard. He's in the temple courts, as chapter 20 uh, verses 1 and 2 remind us. But he is facing, if you like, his own press conference, his own media scrum in front of him with hands going up one after the other, not out of a desire to kind of get some truth out of him so that they might believe, but in order to try 
and trap him. He's facing his own posse of Andrew Mars and Kathy Newman's thrusting microphones in his face. And I want us to look at this passage in two chunks tonight. Verses 20 to, 20, uh, 20 to 44, first of all, Jesus under scrutiny. And then verse 45 through to verse 4 of chapter uh, 21, where Jesus turns the table and puts the religious leaders under scrutiny. So one, Jesus under scrutiny. Uh, verse 20 uh, really picks up where Dan left off uh, last week. This is the same occasion, as I've said. Uh, verse 19 tells us that it's the teachers of the law and the chief priests who are the ones, in verse 20, keeping a close watch on Jesus because they basically know that this parable of the tenants that Dan preached through last week is about them. So what do they do? They try to set a couple of traps, as verse 20 says, hoping to catch Jesus in something he said in order to try and hang him by his own words and ruin his reputation or worse. So in verses 21 to 26, we have the first trap that's set. It's a political one. The journalists on this occasion are, as the text calls them, spies. People who are going under the guise of being interested pollsters or keen supporters of this one who, as they say in verse 21, is, speaks and teaches exactly what is right and doesn't show person, uh, partiality and teaches God's ways that are all in accordance with the truth. It all sounds lovey-dovey. But they're not fans. They're fake. Matthew and Mark give us insight into this group, and they tell us that it's made up of Herodians and disciples of the Pharisees, and that's a most unlikely coalition. They're opposite ends of the political spectrum. Herodians actually supported Roman rule. It worked out well for them, but the Pharisees definitely didn't. But here they are together, zeroing in on their target. And what's the question? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, taxation is a big issue in any society. Societal unrest can often uh, hinge on just how much a government chooses to tax its people. Uh, I was a kid when the poll tax riots took place in the 1980s. Um, I remember bailiffs coming to my door, not for me, because I wasn't a taxpayer. It was a scary time. Reports on the news of riots in Princess Street and so on. It was a political disaster, really hated by the people. But I want to, the reason I'm saying that is because the imperial tax in Israel, in Jerusalem, in that day was hated even more. And it wasn't because of the amount of tax that was deducted. It was only one denarius once a year. That's like one day's wages for uh, a laborer. You think, I wish we were taxed that much. But it was the coin itself that they hated. It was what it represented. Because that coin itself and the image that it bore was basically a symbol of their subjugation. This is the coin, this is the tax that paid for the soldiers who are occupying their land. This coin, of course, had a blasphemous inscription as well that basically said that Caesar himself was divine. They detested it. But here's the trap that they've set. And this coalition think we've absolutely got him. Because if Jesus says, uh, don't pay, the Romans snap the cuffs on him and put an end to this insurrectionist. But if Jesus says pay, the people around him reject him, the crowds reject him, and this wannabe Messiah is driven out. It's a win-win. And you see the tangle. They're forcing him to try and choose either between the people or the Romans, but to them, either way, he is sunk. But look at the answer. 
verse 23, seeing through their duplicity, he asks them for a denarius, a coin, and they've got one, and asks, whose image and inscription are on it? And they tell you the answer, Caesar's. Now, back then, image, this image was very significant. Let me explain. It, you know, it, it wasn't just that Caesar, with his um, picture on the back of one of these coins, that it wasn't just that he was promising to guarantee the value of that coin in a kind of good economy. It was that the Caesar owned the coin. The coin was actually his. It was minted from his own wealth. And so the coin was his, and technically, under the rules of the empire, so was the one who held it. So Jesus says, sure, whose image is on it? Well, it's Caesar's. Well, give it back to Caesar. In other words, it belongs to him. So give him what belongs to him. But that's not all he says, of course. Verse 25, he adds, and give to God what is God's. Now, what does that mean? What belongs to God? Well, you might say everything. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Good, that's what the Bible says. But we're thinking here particularly about this thing called image. And implicit in Jesus' instruction to give to God what is God's is the question then, what carries God's image? And the obvious answer to those of us who know and love the Lord is that, well, we do, you do, I do. All humanity does. Genesis 1, 27, you know, page one of our Bibles, God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So that just as a denarius, a Roman denarius bore the likeness of Caesar, every human being bears the likeness of God. Now, not physically, of course, for God doesn't have an appearance. You can't take a photo of his face and say, this is what God looks like. Nevertheless, humanity images God in personal and relational existence and in activity that reflects the characteristics of God himself. Now, what is, therefore, what is God therefore due from those who bear his image, from every single human being on this planet? Our worship, our reverence, our awe, our service, our obedience, our submission to him, our all. That's what every human being ought to give him. Now, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, if you haven't come to know Jesus' death on the cross as him substituting himself for you and for your sin, uh, this might be brand new news to you. Uh, you know, this is the reason why Actually, our society holds such a, a high view of humanities, why there are laws against murder and so on, yet they don't, they're not entirely comprehensive. But this is, this, the news is that you are made in God's image, and you belong to God. Every single one of the eight billion people on this planet does, though many don't live like it. What Jesus says here in this simple answer to this political question that's thrown at him ought to completely revolutionize your world. For if he's right that you are made in his image and belong to him, though you live like you don't, you're guilty of the kind of, the, a kind of insurrection, if you like, of the rebellion of someone who, for example, back then didn't pay the denarius to Caesar. The good news is, 
Jesus died for rebels like us to bring us to God. This is why he's doing what he's doing, why he's going to the cross that he goes to. And he rose again three days later, as we've already been singing about in our service. He rose to reassure rebels like us that those who come to him in repentance are guaranteed the forgiveness that he holds out. And that those who repent and believe are restored in that image, bit by bit, more and more into the likeness of Jesus, carefully, painstakingly, like the restoration of a decrepit painting until that day when he returns or we die, whichever comes first, and we'll be made fully like him. My encouragement for you is to find out more about this. Come to him, trust in him. Come and find out more. Our Hope Explored course, as we've just been praying about uh, a few moments ago, still, is still running, and there is another session this coming Friday night. It doesn't matter if you've not made it to the first two. You're still very welcome to come to that session there. You can sign up for it down at the Connect Corner. Or if you want to find out more by reading a bit more of God's Word that we're looking at tonight, there are Mark's Gospels down at the Connect Corner as well. Pop down there after the service. The folks there will be happy to give you one. They're free. You don't have to pay for those. But what about for those of us who do believe? You know, Luke tells us at the very beginning of this gospel that these things are written so that we may know and be assured that Jesus is the Christ. And that by putting our faith in him, it's, it's not misplaced. It's the best thing we can possibly do. Well, as those who bear God's image, we are those who value human life. And tell those in whom the image of God is broken that the gospel restores it. So we have to be evangelists. We have to tell people, even as Jesus himself is making this point known to those who are questioning him. And as those who are being conformed more and more to the image of his son, we make sure we give to God what is God's, friends, don't we? That is our lives. And we must take care to be prayerful, and to speak into one another's lives because if you're anything like me, it is perilously easy to become so self-focused. To think that everything revolves around us or everything is intended to serve us and our joy, but it's just not true. That's the kind of mentality and attitude and faith even that makes us like the Pharisees that are condemned at the start of chapter 21. We'll get to that. So this is a beware as well. Now, how did the spies respond to Jesus' reply to their political dilemma? The text tells us that they were astonished. They did a Kathy Newman looking up for uh, the words, but they never came. They were silent. This is Jesus. Ha! Gotcha. But that wasn't the end of the Inquisition, of course. If you look at 27 to 39, here come the Sadducees, their hands up straight away with a theological trap. Now, who are the Sadducees? It's important to know this. They were, they were part of the religious establishment of the day, but they were wealthy aristocrats. Many of them held priestly positions in Israel at the time. Along with the Pharisees, they made up the ruling council of the, the Sanhedrin and so on. But um, Jewish historians, uh, uh, Josephus in particular, reports about this particular sect called the, Pharise uh, the Sadducees and explains how they are very unpopular, they're harsh, they're very overbearing. But they were theological liberals as well. They only, to a Sadducee, only the first five books of the Bible were inerrant and infallible. That's why uh, they 
punt this question to Jesus. They, they rejected any teaching about the afterlife or resurrection, the very subject of their question, because they reasoned that in the first five books of the Bible, well, you just don't find anything about resurrection or life after death or anything like that. So they dismissed it. So they didn't believe in a resurrection. That's why they were Sadducees. I'm sorry. That wasn't in the notes, and I knew I shouldn't have done it. So the question... Okay, the question is basically this, the scenario that they offer. The scenario is, which of the seven husbands gets the wife in heaven? Okay, and here's the scenario. It's an elaborate scenario. It's all tied to this thing in Deuteronomy 25 called leveret marriage. I'll not go into all the details of it. It sounds kind of weird to us. But in a time when there was no kind of social welfare or support for um, the least in society, such as widows, women who lost their husbands before they had kids were to be married to the deceased brother in order to continue the family line and make provision for the family. That's basically it. So the Sadducees come with this in mind and present what they call their, what they think is a watertight dilemma. So a man leaves, a man dies without leaving any heir. His wife marries the dead man's brother but he also dies, so the third brother marries the wife. Same thing happens to brother four, five, and six. And surely the seventh brother, standing at the altar, is hesitating because this woman's clearly an axe murderer or a terrible cook or something crazy. Anyway, he says, I do, then he dies, and then she dies. That's the scenario. But here comes the question. Whose wife will she be at the resurrection? Who's she going to walk hand in hand with in the new heaven and new earth? when that time comes. They're no doubt looking pretty chuffed at themselves for the question that they've constructed. Sadducee fist bumps all round. But the answer comes in two simple parts. In verses 34 to 36, Jesus says, firstly, you don't know what you're talking about. The Sadducees think that life after death is somehow just this, that the, the life after death that's presented and taught by people who believe it, it's just a mere continuation of just everything that there's been in this life. That the relationships that we have here continue later. That the inst institutions necessary for the continuation of, of life in this world, like marriage, will be necessary in the next. But that's not true. There'll be lots of continuity into the new heaven and new earth. Lots of continuity at the resurrection. But there's discontinuity too. Things are different. And Jesus says, first of all, the first thing that's different is that marriage isn't forever. It's only for this life. In this life, we need it to fulfill the creation mandate, to fill and to subdue the earth. In this life, it is vital to a healthy society. But marriage isn't forever. But, Jesus says, you are. You are. You are forever. Verse 36 says, at the resurrection, people can no longer die, for they are like the angels. Oh, that's another problem. Uh, the Sadducees don't believe in angels either. So has Jesus just put his foot in his mouth, or is he being very deliberate? Well, he's underlining the truth that the Sadducees and all who deny an afterlife miss, that we, being like the angels, will live forever. And that we, like the angels, won't marry, but serve God with our all, with everything, all the time. 
doing his bidding will be our greatest joy and delight. How is this possible? Well, the text tells us they are God's children since they are children of the resurrection, which is just a kind of short way of saying they're children of God through adoption and heirs with Christ of the eternal life that's in Christ Jesus. That's what's ours. Those who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ are God's children and are therefore children of the resurrection. You're that even before the resurrection has happened. That's such a wonderful text. Children of God through adoption. Ephesians 1 tells us that we're adopted because we're redeemed. Ephesians 1 also tells us that we're only redeemed because Jesus shed his blood. That's why he gets all the praise. That's the first part of Jesus' answer. You don't know your Bibles. Second answer he gives is that, no, the first one is, uh, you don't know what you're talking about. Second thing is, you don't know your Bible very well. This is what we see in verses 37 to 40. To guys who only read the books of Moses... Uh, and who loved Exodus 3 and 4 in particular, as God reveals himself to Moses through the burning bush episodes, Jesus says, how could you miss this? How could you miss what God himself says to Moses in the episode of the burning bush? What did God say? Listen carefully. I am, this is Exodus 3, 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Not was, am still presently in other words though abraham isaac and jacob are long gone they are alive and well in fact more alive than they had ever been that's why jesus says in verse 38 that god is not the god of the dead god does not preside over a cemetery he doesn't walk along tombstones and come across abraham's and say oh there's abraham remember him he was a good guy no he is the god of abraham still because Abraham has received the promise that God has given him, and he is with him in glory. No, God is not the God of the dead. God is the God of the living. What great news for us, friends, who all have to face death if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and that that eternal life is going to be with him. The God who promises life beyond the grave in his presence for eternity is so gracious to do so so how did the Sadducees respond to Jesus reply to this watertight theological dilemma well they too were silent it's their theological opponents in verse 39 that say oh well said teacher having a little elbow dig at the Sadducees and they were silenced by Jesus gotcha what about you if you're not a believer if you would not call yourself a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, do you know that this is what Jesus taught? Maybe you don't believe there's anything after this earthly life is over. Maybe with Christopher Hitchens, who said prior to his death, or maybe you agree with Christopher Hitchens, sorry, who said prior to his death, there is no sequel to this life. My body will be subject to the nervous dissection of medical students, and plowed as chemicals back into the earth, my final contribution being to make surrounding muck nutritious. Or you can believe Jesus, who taught that as I live, you also shall live. You can believe in Jesus, who's sent one, his apostle, the apostle Paul said of Jesus' resurrection, that it wasn't just 
that it was the first, but not just the only resurrection, but the first of many to come. And his guaranteeing ours. There is life after death, a heaven or a hell, depending on what we make of him. The question I would lay before you is, who's right, Hitchens or Jesus? I'm guessing you're probably best banking your eternity on the one who actually came back from the dead, Jesus Christ himself. He rose, and his resurrection not only proves his word and his power, but serves as a promise. So put your faith and trust in him. But what about those of us who do believe in this resurrection? Again, Jesus stands up under scrutiny, meaning that he can be trusted. He is the authoritative judge in this temple. He is the one who's teaching what is true. He's the true high priest. And at the same time, he's teaching us great truths that offer great reassurance about life beyond the grave. And we shouldn't miss those, that those who've died in Christ are not dead. They are more alive than they have ever been. What comfort that is to those who grieve. What comfort that is to those near death. Now, I know for married couples, particularly my wife, it's very difficult to figure out what life will look like in the new heaven and new earth without your husband or your wife by your side. But still, what comfort we have in the fact that when we're there, we will love our earthly spouses more than we ever did in this life, as together we do God's bidding and serve his glory with unspeakable joy in every respect. Well, that's the political question from the spies, the theological question from the Sadducees. No more hands went up, so Jesus breaks the silence, doesn't he, with a theological question of his own, verses 41 to 44. And he's basically here a gospel invitation is offered when he asks this question, if I can summarize it. Who is the third person in Psalm 110? Verse 41, why is it said that that the Messiah is the son of David. David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord, therefore how can he be his son? Now it's tricky to follow. I had to read it at least 15 times and draw a diagram to get it right, so let me lay it out. King David speaks to God and calls him Lord. Correct, that's the right thing. But David then speaks of God addressing a third person who's not David and calls him Lord. And this third person, this other Lord, is someone who is said at verse 42, sits at God's right hand. Verse 43, is promised victory over all his enemies. But this third person is not David, but is still David's son. Therefore, who is it? Well, the answer is simple. It is Jesus. Although he doesn't give the answer, does he? Did you notice that in the passage? He just leaves them hanging to ponder the dilemma. But the answer that we have in our Bibles is that it's him. He is the son of David. And he is the son of God. The divine son, the God-man who, because of the redemption he won for all who would believe, is raised and exalted to the right hand of God to receive eternal praise. So as Jesus throws this question back at them, leaving them to ponder this for themselves. In the quietness, it's an invitation. 
to recognize who he is. It's an invitation to identify Jesus truly as the Messiah King. God's promised anointed king from of old, who as the Old Testament scriptures foretold would be divine. And instead of picking up stones and plotting his death, they should be falling at his feet and crying out for mercy. But do they? Well, we know what's coming, don't we? There's every indication that these religious leaders won't. In the coming weeks, we'll hear them cry for his crucifixion. They'll lie, they'll beat him unfairly in a horrible, terrible mistrial. But even the evidence of why they do that is right here in verses 45 through to 21, verse 4. This is my second point. The religious leaders then come under scrutiny. And this is a very quick point, by the way. Verse 45 tells us that while all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware. Beware the teachers of the law. So they're, in, they're eavesdropping in on this conversation he's having with his disciples. Beware those guys. Imagine how tense that would be. Beware. Why? Two reasons. Firstly, they're ensnared by pride. That's what he points out in verses 45 to 47. These religious leaders are doing what they do, thinking what they think, saying what they're saying, and plotting what they're plotting against me, according to Jesus, because they want to be first. They want to be the center of attention. They love their rank. That's what the, the, the robes symbolize. They love the praise of men. They like the public greetings. Hello, Rabbi. They love promotion. They like to, oh, come and have the best seat. They love the recognition, the places of honor. And then they want to be served, and they do whatever it takes to be self-serving and to receive such serving, whether it's exploiting the weak, like widows and their estate, or giving the impression that they're God's brightest asset by making such lengthy prayers. It's all to serve the pretense of their selfish endeavors. And as I said, the same pride will cause them to lie in their counsel and demand of Pontius Pilate the crucifixion of the innocent Jesus Christ. Now you see, he's inviting his disciples and those actually who are listening in to identify the religious leaders for who they are, to subject them to scrutiny. And by eavesdropping on his conversation, the people are encouraged to see what these shepherds of Israel are, wolves. How eye-wideningly astonishing to hear that from the lips of a man so unspeakably gracious that these religious leaders will be, as Jesus himself says, punished most severely. Punished most severely. You know why? Because God opposes the proud. And he gives grace to the humble, but God opposes the proud. And proud is exactly what they are. In their pride, they set themselves up in competition with Jesus, the Lord. But God will tolerate no idol. With regard to the love he has for his people, he will tolerate no wolf in sheep's clothing. And eternal hell is a fitting punishment for those who by their ministry represent God to the people and obstruct the people's way to God. All for personal gain. 
gospel, their shame is not only stated by Jesus, and the application for us is to beware religious leaders like them, but their shame is also heightened by this seemingly random coincidence, not random, it's very providential, of this widow worshipping God by giving a humble gift, a gift that shames the greedy gain of the religious leaders. It's against the picture of those who exploit widows is a widow who gives her all. See that in verses 1 to 4? Compared to the rich, she gave a tiny amount. It's how, this is why she shames the humble. Compared to the rich, she gave a tiny amount. Tithes and offerings, of course, were given in the temple back then through these kind of great receptacles, kind of shaped like open trumpets. Um, there were no banknotes back then, of course, so you basically heard everything that was going in, and whatever you put in clanged. But in the midst of the clanging that takes place, there are these barely audible, two little coins. And the coins were the smallest denomination of their currency. It's called the lepta. It'd be like someone putting two pennies in the offering boxes out there. And some might think, oh, why bother? But I love the fact that Jesus has ears to hear those two little quinks and marvels at them because of the love and the devotion and the dependence that they represent on behalf of this woman of faith. Jesus said, verses 3 and 4, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. So compared to these religious leaders who devour widows, she is most evidently a child of God. They do all they do for show and gain, and in contrast, this little widow does what she does with no fanfare and out of love. And isn't it a beautiful thing that the Lord Jesus himself sees the faith and the heart behind her gift? The Lord of salvation, the Lord of her salvation and her hope sees her. Of course, just a few days later, that hope would come to pass. The greatest gift ever given would be offered and the only thing clanging or clinking would be nails hammered into his body. As the great shepherd of Israel, he would lay down his life for the sheep. And far from being proud like these religious leaders, he would humble himself even to death. Death on a cross. And far from pursuing his own self-interest, he set it aside, looking to the interests of others, his lost sheep. And rather than exploiting poor widows and others like her for whom life is hard and rubbish, he'd lay down his life to make her and others like her rich beyond their imagination in glory. And he, of course, would be raised to life again to assure us that he is David's son and Lord. He is the God of the living. And he is the one in whose image we're made. The call for us, therefore, as we look at this one who both stands up under scrutiny and makes known his perfection, 
and who also subject others to scrutiny in a way that reinforces his own. The call then is for us to believe is to be more confident in him and what he has taught. And the appeal to those who do not yet believe is to believe. Let's take a few moments in the quietness to pray. Our own prayers of faith and response uh, to what we've heard. And then we'll stand and sing his praise. Father, it saddens us to see the Lord Jesus himself, the true Son of God, come under such scrutiny, and ultimately because of proud self-interest. We know the cross was the plan. He told us so, and we saw it in Luke 9 and Luke 17 already. But it's so sad to see so many reject but it reminds us that today the same is true. Many reject him and his teaching. Our prayer is that you would help us to not only have confidence in ourselves, in him and all that your word says, but that we might be those who in conversation with others do so with such confidence and assurance knowing that your words your person, your truth stands up under scrutiny. So help us to be open and to hold forth this word of life that others may come to know it. And Lord, please grant us the joy of knowing Jesus more, of growing in assurance in our own hearts. For many here, we are in various ways plagued with doubt. But grant us to grow in our faith and our joy in this Lord Jesus and in all that you have given us through your holy word to know and to believe. Let it be so for all of us in this church family, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to close our service, let's uh, stand and sing together a song which really is our prayer. I will to know.